0: How are we doing this morning? Good. Okay, we are, well, I am Mitch Hinton, my wife Marisol sitting there. We have four children. You actually can go to the first slide, gentlemen, if that's all right. So this is our family here. We have four children. His is eight, or nine, I'm sorry. <laughs> Isaac is eight, Whitney is five, Nathan is two. Uh, I am a third-generation carpenter slash missionary. My wife was a dental hygienist and uh, missionary as well. We serve in San Jose, Costa Rica. We serve in La Carpio specifically. The largest slum in Latin America, not just the largest slum in Costa Rica, largest slum in Latin America, 45,000 Nicaraguans, uh, habitat that slum. So this morning, I hope we can stretch our worldviews a little bit, our perspectives Maybe even our opinions, our biblical worldview. I was on a call with a pest control company in the states about a year ago, and uh, the guy—the call was breaking up, and the guy says to me, "Where are you calling from?" And I said, "Well, I'm actually calling on a U.S. line from a Costa Rican position. I'm in Costa Rica right now." And he says, "Oh, that's nice." And I said, "Yeah, it's, it's all right." And he's like, "No, that's nice." And I'm like. <laughs> Okay, I was like, well, we work in a slum towns. So we don't live at the beach or on a volcano, volcano. And the guy says, yeah, right, buddy. And I'm like, what is this? This is just a customer care service with a pest control company. But he was telling me his perception of what I was living was far different than what I was living. His idea, his worldview of Costa Rica didn't include the slums, it was volcanoes and beaches and margaritas. Sorry. So, I hope our our theme this morning, my point, overarching point, would be that we get this. God is a missional God. He cares for the nations. He's calling us, each one of us here, to simple acts of obedience to take his gospel to the world and make his glory known. He called my wife and I to Chile in 2012 and then on to Costa Rica in 2015. So, let's read the text. We're going to be in Acts Acts 8 verse 26 through 40. I was told you guys use the ESV, which is great because that's what I have. So, we're going to read through the text first, and then we're going to break it down. I'm a guy that likes doesn't like to leave stones unturned, so we're going to go through the context a little bit, go through some character development, and then we're going to get to the main points of the teaching. So Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place and he rose and went and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah, and the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded a chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized, or he baptized him. And when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself, uh, that city I'm not going to pronounce well, Azatos, and he passed through the preach, and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. If we know... A little bit about Acts. We know the context. The beginning of Acts eight starts, uh, continues in Simon the magician. What it looks like uh, that many theologians would say a false conversion. The story of Simon the magician in Acts eight nine through twenty five. Then we move on to Acts nine, and it's Saul's conversion. So this, the text we're going to read this morning is sandwiched in between what would be considered a false conversion. And then probably one of the greatest conversions of the faith. And then also the, the Ethiopian eunuch. Another conversion. Another way we can see true conversion. These are important to the text. This is important to where it's laid out. When we look at the characters um, in the story, there's very few. Not much to look at. Philip, we know, was of Jewish descent. He was one of the twelve disciples. Often it's confused of, Ju- of Philip the evangelist and Philip uh, the disciple. This is Philip the disciple, two different people, not the same people, not the same person. We would remember him from the, the book of John, chapter 1, where Jesus calls him. He's invited, and then he invites Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, however it's written in your word, to come meet Jesus. I don't know if you remember the story, but we all have friends like Bartholomew. I am that friend who says... <laughs> What good can come from Galilee? You know, he's talking about Jesus. Like, there's nothing good from that town. It's how Pennsylvanians talk about New Jerseyans. (laughs) Hopefully, nobody here from New Jersey. So, everybody has that friend. But Nathaniel, or excuse me, Philip invites his friend Nathaniel to meet Jesus. He was educated. We know this by his knowledge of Scripture. Which also points towards the fact that maybe his family had some money. He was wealthy. We also know through his history that he spoke several languages. This is also very important to the story. We'll get into that a little bit later. And then I hope we answer the question, I hope it's clear, of why Philip was chosen. Why him out of the twelve? We move on to the Ethiopian eunuch. Not much really to learn here. I did a ton of research on the man And not much to find. We know what we know from Scripture. He was was from Ethiopia. He was a court official who was treasurer over all the wealth of the Queen of of the Ethiopians. Based solely, and I'm pulling this from Scripture, so we're not going to call it Scripture. Based solely on the fact that he received permission to go to Jerusalem to worship and come back, would point to the fact that he was a trustworthy man. He was a man worthy... He had integrity, and the queen allowed him to go. Just mapping his trajectory, we know that he traveled 2,600 miles, one way, to worship. When I think of my life as a Christian, if the coffee was not hot enough, or the seats were not cushy enough, I was upset in my church. This dude ran 2,600 miles in an oxen-driven carriage. We could probably walk faster than those oxen. So minimum, 30 days, one way, to go worship in Jerusalem. Also very important, if we remember, he, he's a eunuch, which disqualifies him even to enter. Guy go to Jerusalem to worship, he's not even permitted in the temple to do so. But he does it anyway. And he knows this. He shows this by some of his knowledge, some of his questions of Scripture. Let's look at verse 26. Now we'll get into dissecting some of the word. We know this is an odd calling. We know from the historical context that this road is a desert road just based in scripture. So we can assume the road is dangerous. We can assume the road is hot. There isn't a lot of water around. We, can, we also know it's a, uh, the city of Gaza, heading towards the city of Gaza, which is controlled by the Philistines. We all know from history, David and Goliath, Philistines and, and the Jews didn't get along. They weren't buddy-buddy. So God was calling this man, God was calling Philip to go. When I was thinking about it in upstate New York terms, I was thinking, would an angel of the Lord coming down here to Emmanuel and saying, I want you to go to the swamps of Louisiana and wait for me there. We would be like, whew, it's kind of hot down there. There's some big insects there and snakes possibly and alligators. Maybe you have the wrong guy, Lord. Maybe, maybe you're confused here and you're calling the wrong person. Philip doesn't answer that way. How does Philip answer? He answers with a yes. He answers with obedience. Many of us missionaries didn't have an angel of the Lord come down to our houses and say, it's time for you to go to Costa Rica. Our God is a creative God. He uses many ways to speak to his individual people and to speak to his sons and daughters. And I pray that you're all hearing from him in different ways. Through his creative means. Let's look at first Kings nineteen. I think it's a well no, I don't have it on the screen, I'm sorry. First Kings nineteen, nine through fourteen. It's one of the ways God speaks through Elijah, to Elijah. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek, my face t- they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke into pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, I don't know how many of you experienced an earthquake before. It's a regular occurrence in Costa Rica. We experience them quite a bit. Nothing of great magnitude. The highest has been a seven. But it's not, it's not a calming experience. Because you don't know how long it's going to last or what the, the power of this earthquake is. But God doesn't use that big event to talk to Elijah here. He doesn't use the fire. He doesn't use the wind. He speaks in a low whisper. And that, to me, is important when we're thinking of our communication with Christ, with the Trinity... What are we doing? Are we pulling ourselves back into those quiet spaces to hear from Him? Or are we just waiting for Him to speak to us through the busyness of life? The application point we have here are we collectively, as a body, listening? Are we personally hearing from God? Too often we hear, God doesn't speak to me. I've never heard from God. I won't rabbit trail us too far down this but an important point is the difference between the written will of God what you're holding in your hands and the spoken word of God all of us have the privilege of the written will of God in our hands to read and to understand and I pray we're, we're getting into that because God doesn't choose to speak to everyone he's never audibly spoke to me could he? absolutely does he choose to? Not necessarily at this point in my life. But it's our responsibility to dig into the word. To dig into those quiet times and meet him. God calls us into relationship, into community. As this church, we've seen the two testimonies this morning of what community looks like. Philip had a great ministry. I don't think he was on his knees praying to God, God... Take me from this awesome ministry of preaching your gospel throughout the nations and send me to this desert road where I could be killed by the Philistines. No, I don't believe he was saying that. But he knew the creator. He knew who was asking him personally. He experienced ministry with Jesus. And through that knowledge, through that relationship, it was a quick, obedient yes he was open to God, changing his ministry. Verse 27. Let's read the verse. Go back to Acts 8, 27. Court official. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. So we know he said yes. We know his obedience was in the purest of forms. There was a call and Philip responded. What do you think the conversation was like around the breakfast table at his house with his buddies? Well, God called me to the road to Gaza, so I'm going to head out. And they're like, uh, are you sure about that? The first time I was on the phone with my brother when we lived in Chile, and I was yelling out down the road in Spanish at somebody, He stood silent on the other end, and he's like, what did you just say? And it it was astonishing. I'm a hillbilly from Lancaster County. Nobody ever thought this hillbilly was going to speak Spanish, but God called me to speak Spanish. God has equipped me to speak Spanish. Do we have any Spanish speakers here? Show of hands. Entonces, puedo decir cualquier cosa y nadie va a saber. I can say whatever I want, and nobody's going to understand. Okay. When I think of this relationship that Philip had with his God, I think of a child and a father, a child and a mother. I have four children, as you've seen on the screen, and that obedience doesn't come in my house all the time. It is a process that is worked at. But a child, a young child, trusts in the words of his father, trusts in the words of his mother. Why? Because of reputation. There's been a reputation built on trust, on sound judgment, on sound words of wisdom. Also because there's relationship. The child has no one else to go to. He knows the father and knows the mother. Sometimes our, our children negotiations look like hostage negotiations. We're trying to get them to eat dinner. We're trying to get them to do their chores or get dressed. That's not how it looked here with Philip. When we look at the application, questions I want everyone here, including myself, to consider. When God gives you clear direction, small, big, medium sized, it doesn't matter, do we generally follow it? Do questions arise in our minds of what, where, who, when, how? Or do we trust and obey? Do we answer the call and go? As I said before, too often in my parenting, Marisol and I's parenting, it's you're negotiating with somebody to do something. That's not obedience. That's negotiating. And too often with Christ, when he says, go speak to this person, invite this person into your house, do life with this person, disciple this, but Lord, no, for X, Y, and Z, or "Eh, I don't have room in my house. My house isn't big enough. I can't even take them in my car. Do we, do we practice obedience? Why was Philip a good choice? Let's answer the question. Philip was a good choice. I'm pulling this from the Bible a little bit, so we're not going to stand biblically on this, but it's an experiential point, which I believe is, is valid. The Trinity could have chosen any which one of the disciples to, to manifest their power in. Any which one of them. Why was was Philip chosen? We know by history he spoke more than one language. Knowing that information, we could assume that he understood other cultures. When you learn language, you learn culture. They're married. They're meshed. They're mixed. You cannot get one without the other. How would you explain to a native Spanish speaker it's raining cats and dogs outside? (laughs) We can't do it. Where did the term originate? From the 1600s in England. Culture runs deep within language, and vice versa. They're shaped together. There's two ways in Spanish, there's two forms of knowledge. The verb, the verb conocer is heart knowledge. The verb saber is head knowledge. Two very different verbs. If I was to say, yo sé mi esposa, I know my wife. I'm telling you, I know her with a head knowledge. And you would be able to translate that in your mind and say, he doesn't even know his wife. He doesn't know who he's talking about. But if I said, yo conozco mi esposa, I'm saying I know my wife. I know her with my eyes, my hands, my heart. Okay? These are all things, all differences in our knowledge and the knowledge Philip had of other cultures. When you think of the differences between a Jewish man and an Ethiopian man, vast differences in appearance. Possibly language. I'm sure the Ethiopian man was an educated man as well. So they would have spoke common language. But just the differences in appearance. Most of us wouldn't even approach. Because we'd be too afraid. Or we'd have fear. Into what that conversation would look like. We would just assume based on appearance. We don't speak the same language. I have no interest right now. But God used Philip. Because he knew other languages. He knew other cultures. He was a cultured man. There was a team of Americans down with us uh, about six months ago in Costa Rica. We took them to lunch. I had a man on either side of me. We were sitting and chatting, ordering food, and, and the guy to the right of me says, I want to I order, a, what did he say, a Philly cheesesteak wrap. Because when, when I can eat American, I can, I'm going to eat American. Now, I let him do what he wanted because he was going to get the result he was going to get. A Costa Rican-made Philly cheesesteak wrap. (laughs) (laughs) Terrible. The guy to the left of me said, Why don't you order for me? I'll eat what you're eating. Two very different mindsets. When we think through the application, we think through that little story. What does it mean... You had a guy willing to learn, willing to put himself out there, willing to, to do. You had another man that was very closed. Ironically, this man was older by about 20 years. And the older we get generally, the more accustomed we get to our standards, our ways, our methods. But this man came with a learning heart. Big difference. And when, I, when we got done with the meal, I said, how was your Costa Rican Philly cheesesteak? said, it was terrible. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. (laughs) Maybe I'll order for you next time. So the application point, when we think of the, the culture aspect, the language aspect, are we willing to walk in someone's shoes? Are we willing to be a lifelong learner? To look at life from someone else's vantage point. To stand in someone's shoes, you feel how their feet fit. You feel where their differences are. They might hurt your feet, your back, your knees. But you see life from their vantage point. If I was to put the shoes on of the people we worked with, most likely some of my feet would be touching the ground because the soles are weared out or their toes stick out the feet. But I would get a quick vantage point into their life of what they live every single day. Are we willing to do that? A great scripture reference for this, Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 9. Let's turn there and read the scripture passage. 1 Corinthians nine nineteen through 23. I'm going to take a quick sip of water. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as under the law. They're not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law. Not, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside of the law. To the weak, I became weak that I may win the weak I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Are you, am I, willing to become who God needs us to be, to win some, to share in the blessing? You boil the question down to its lowest form. Who and where and what is our identity? When you move to another country, you are stripped somewhat of your identity. No longer can you speak the language. No longer do you share food preferences. No longer do you share security, family preferences. Those are stripped from you. And you're, you're asked to rebuild. You're asked to tweak things in ways you may not want to. I didn't have the story written down, but a good story on identity. Fletch was there, I believe, the day I had a business in construction for seven years. The Lord called us to Chile, and there's... I'm probably going to choke up here a little bit, but there stood my truck with my name on it, my graphics, all around my truck. Beautiful truck. And the Lord... As I stood there, we were packing our house up, getting ready to leave. The Lord said, it's time to strip your truck. And I'll tell you, it was the hardest thing I've ever done. I, I began to pull the graphics off my truck, rip my name off my truck, rip my business of seven years. And I call it the Trail of Tears because there was tears from the start all the way to the finish. But it was Identity. The Lord was replacing, reconfiguring my identity because no longer was I going to be a Lancaster Countyan. I was going to be a Chilean. I was going to be a Costa Rican. Now you look at me you're never going to be a Costa Rican. That's true. But a brother can try. It's helpful to point out, let's, let's read the verses. And he was returning seated in his chariot. And he was ready reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? It's helpful to point out in these times reading out loud was customary. There was lack of punctuation and sentence structure. So it helped to read out loud to understand the script. Most likely, he had a scroll up to 30 feet long that he was reading from. <laughs> when you think of that, riding in an ox-driven chariot, reading a 30-foot scroll out loud. He was probably screaming at the top of his lungs to get everybody else to understand too, so they could hear it. But we see spirits, the Spirit's leading to Philip as he hears and recognizes the Scriptures being read. Very important. He knew... Okay, he didn't have the Old Testament this time, but he had the, the... I'm sorry, he didn't have the New Testament. He had the Old Testament. He knew the Scriptures just by hearing them and knew where and what was being read. God's leading, the Spirit's leading, it cannot be absent from a conversion. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Again, that Spirit leading... Later in Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. If we take a look, there was a plan in place that nobody else saw that we get a chance to see because we have the book in front of us. God's supernatural heart work done in Philip to go after the leading obediently for the eunuch to read the scripture aloud. His supernatural heart work was already working before any yeses were even made. His word being read out loud, faith comes through, and salvation. A God following man obeys the call, and salvation comes to an Ethiopian eunuch. God cares for the nations. God doesn't need us. He chooses to use us. He wants, us, he wants to use us to advance the gospel. We could end the sermon right here. Close the Bible, be done. Probably some of you would enjoy that. But there's importance into hearing the rest of the story. Into understanding God's missional heart. The first Gentile believer was saved on record in this story. The first Gentile believer. If you didn't know it, we, I would say the majority of us are Gentiles here in this room. God cares for the nations. We don't know the amount of time Philip spent with the Eunuch, but we knew it was sufficient enough for him to understand the gospel and want to give his life to it. When we think through the applications of just these verses, there're many are we willing to follow the, the, the following or we sorry are we following the spirit's leading simpler question are you willing to get in the chariot would you have the obedience to the lord's call no matter how clear or concise when we left for chile we have never been to the, we never went to the town we were living in we never seen the house we were going to stay in we didn't even really know who was picking us up from the airport but the Lord said, go, and we answered. It, I'm not interested in getting glory. I'm interested in, in sharing a story of sometimes God calls us blindly into faith, into that leading. God calls us to trust and obey. Too often we trade obedience for comfort. Me included. We'd much rather please ourselves than please God. God. I've been discipling a man by the name of Charlie for the last two years. The man's had a hard road. His father was never a part of his life. His mother died in October last year, almost a year ago. And he was the man in the house at 26 years old with a younger brother. So we entered into a discipling relationship. We tried to help his mom while she was alive, but dealing with the health care system down there, she ended up passing early at 50 years old. I had a hard life conversation with him right before we left. We were, he's been a part of our studies. He's been a part of our English classes, our Jobs for Life classes, our, our courses. We have, we have rubbed shoulders. We have knocked sharp edges off each other. It's been 101 discipleship. And he said to me, can, you, can we walk through some of these points again? He's living with his girlfriend. And I said, Charlie, here's where it stands. And his end point was to me, And the conversation came down to, pleasing God is going to cost me too much. And it was a hard conversation to hear because we were getting ready to leave. There wasn't going to be another two months of hard discipleship of of back and forth. He just come to the point, God brought him to the point of saying, if you want me as your king and savior, it's going to cost your life. It's a point which we bring a lot of people to in Carpio. Like where I grew up in Lancaster County, a lot of people believe in God. A lot of people have good intentions when it comes to believing in God. But far too little give their life to Him. And that's the same in Carpio. Many people say, si Dios quiere," If God wills, we'll do it tomorrow. Or if God wants it, we'll happen tomorrow. But here hear. It was a clear calling from God to say, it's time to give me your life. Verses 31 through 35. Let's read the text. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shear is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. We know this governing official, this Ethiopian, had a humble way about him. If you had a chariot and somebody was running next to it, you wouldn't say, come on in. We'd be like, that's done. He invited him in. He was obedient to the call as well. The Spirit's leading was not absent. First, he asked, how can I? How can I understand those scriptures unless somebody guides me? We all should be in humbleness to to invite a discipling relationship into his life. We all should be in those tier relationships. Somebody a little bit older and somebody a little bit younger. Somebody that's mentoring us and us passing on. The cup is not meant to stay full. It's meant to be emptied. The Ethiopian, although apart from Christ at this point, understood that. I personally would have not invited a man into the chariot. We live in Costa Rica Security is a high priority in Costa Rica. There are it is a high, high muggings, high robbings, murder rate within Costa Rica. Our doors are locked all the time. We have people that knock on our door all the time. Some God calls us to talk to and to open the door. Others not. It's a matter of the spirit. But even when we consider the classes of these two men within that chariot, you had a high-ranking official, and a follower of Jesus Christ. Not exactly royalty in the eyes of the world in this man, Philip. But again, the Spirit's leading was not absent. We read in verse 35, Philip beginning with and where the eunuch was at this scripture and began to teach him about the life of Jesus through Old Testament knowledge. I would love to tell you, I wish I could tell you, I could teach you About Jesus through the Old Testament I am no Bible scholar But this man could Another reason why I believe He was chosen There was a missionary That that we had met early in our faith I came to Christ in 2004 Through a men's Bible study Marisol also in 2004 We entered into a mentor relationship In 2007 And they pushed us Into the course perspectives which is a missions-based course. If you haven't heard of it, look it up. Great course. Broaden your horizons. Expand your worldviews. But the missionary giving the course was an old missionary, Ray Lucas, a giant of the faith. He had left with his family in the 60s for Peru, drove from Pennsylvania to Peru, first to Costa Rica, attended the same language school we did, only 50 years apart. He was telling me the story of, of how he had studied the, the New Testament with great fervor, but considered the Old Testament the law in which he said, well, God, it's good, but we're preaching grace now. Through one of the longer nights of moving his family to Peru, he set up at his house reading the, reading the Word out on the front porch. He fell asleep on the front porch, went inside, left his Bible out, forgot his Bible, came out the next day to find his Bible shredded, over the front yard not one single pill. the binder touched the whole New Testament and, and the, the binder were shredded because it was leather the dogs of the street had gotten to the Bible and shredded the whole New Testament supernatural leadings in life lead us to points and meetings with God This man, a man who I consider to be a giant of our faith, lived it every day. Do we know the Word of God? Are we prepared to give an answer to why we hold the joy in our hearts? Do you study your Bible in a real and relevant way? Do we take those quiet times to pull back? If somebody was reading Scripture and was confused, could we recognize the Scripture and go help that person? Hopefully not in a chariot, but maybe. Finishing up verses 36 through 39. Okay, let's read the text. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and a eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Haztos. I don't know how to pronounce that very well. And he passed through, and he preached the gospel to the towns until he came to Caesarea. Possibly through the knowledge of Jewish law, this eunuch understood he was not going to be baptized because he was a eunuch. He realized if he was going to submit himself to Jewish law, this was not going to happen, and that's what provokes the question, what prevents me from being baptized? We know Jesus calls us the way we are. He calls us for who we are. And Philip was able to recognize that and teach him that as well, and baptize him with no condition, because of grace. Are we adding anything to the gospel in our lives? Are we putting something on top of it to make it ours? Is the gospel clean, pure, and holy the way it was meant to be? Too often in my own life, I've added the the law back to the gospel. If I don't don't read, instead of experiencing, sit down and pray at every meal. If I don't do this, if I don't do that. Instead of experiencing the relationship with the Creator. Instead of understanding and personally knowing with that heart knowledge, the grace which calls us to these acts of obedience. Just in review here. These are application questions again that I think we all should look through and, and challenge ourselves to answer. How are we collectively or personally hearing from God as a, as a corporate body, as a family unit, as an individual? Are we living, are you living, well, are we living obediently to what God has called or calling you to? Many times callings are not, you don't sell your stuff and you're out the door the next day. They're spaced out. There's preparation. Are we being obedient to that call? Is the call as simple as speak to the clerk at the grocery store? Show her Christ's love. Go down to the, what was the home you guys are going to? Uh, Centron. And show God's love. Are these calls simple but require obedience? A big one. Are we willing to be a life learner? That's not a one sided question. That, that, that questions identity, that questions worldview, perspectives, opinions. Are we willing to learn about someone else's culture? What relationships are we investing time into? Time is something you will never get back, something we live out in missions every day because it flies by. Never in my life has time passed me so fast as when I've been in missions. When we think, oh, where did October go? I have no idea. Where are we investing? And are we adding anything to the gospel? Big questions to ask and answer. I pray you prayerfully do so. I pray we all do. It's a good central point to start with in our lives. Okay, we're going to pray and then a worship song. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your heart for the nations. For using two men with no nothing in common to bring your grace and your salvation and possibly even your salvation to Ethiopia through this man. We thank you for the way you call us to simple acts of obedience and I pray we continue to live those lives of obedience and I pray we keep your grace at the forefront of our knowledge and our identity in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.